The scriptures are the living voice of God. When we read them, God is speaking to his people. The preacher, therefore, has a formidable and holy task as they become God's speaker. At the same time, the worshipers have a significant and holy task to listen to the voice of God. In this understanding of worship, both speaking and listening are elevated to a high level of importance. Of course, it is the Holy Spirit who makes these tasks possible, just as a faithful proclamation requires the guidance and filling of God's Spirit, so discerning, listening, and responding require the same Spirit. I invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. I know it says verse 40 in, in your uh, bulletins, but we're going to stop at verse 35. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. We're continuing a sermon series that we just began last week on the Gospel of Luke. Um, the main reason why I wanted to go through Luke was a few months back I was listening to the podcast from the Bible Project, and they were talking about the Gospel of Luke and said uh, something I just thought was interesting. They said Luke is, is maybe the best place to start with a new believer when it comes to teaching them about and revealing to them who Jesus Christ is. I just thought that was kind of interesting to start to think more about it, read through some parts of Luke. And as I did, I thought, you know what? It's not just a great place to start with a new believer. It's a great place for those of us who have been believers maybe a long time, too, uh, to be reintroduced to this person of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the Gospel of Luke over the next number of months, pretty much the whole summer. We're going to work our way through this entire Gospel. A few things we're not going to do. We're not going to look at any of the parables of Jesus, because I'm saving those for a later sermon series. Uh, we're also not going to look at Luke chapter 6, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, because we're going to look at Matthew's version of that at some point uh, as well. I, basically, I have to have some other sermon series to preach at some point. So. And we're calling this series uh, The Road Trip That Changed the World, um, because the second half of Luke's gospel, uh, which we're actually not going to spend as much time in as the first half, is kind of a, a road trip, though, and a travelogue of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And the first half of Luke's gospel, really, though, is him revealing to us what kind of Savior, what kind of Messiah this is that he's telling us about. And that's where we're going to spend a bulk of our time, including today. So Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, and this is what it says. This is right after Jesus' birth. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is written in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, uh, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. 
Then Simeon said, blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the hearts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, going into my sophomore year at what used to be called Calvin College, now Calvin University, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty in the dorm that I lived in. Um, You see, we had a new resident director, or RD, coming in that year to oversee things in the dorm. I've heard that this has changed a bit in recent years, but RDs used to be in charge of pretty much everything in the dorms at Calvin. They were the ones who would work with the student leaders uh, in the dorms. Uh, They were the ones who handled disciplinary issues, and they were also kind of the ones who cast the vision for how life in the dorms would go. And we had a new one coming in um, my sophomore year. And so as a result, we were understandably a bit nervous as we were coming back to school at the beginning of sophomore year, especially since our last RD had been pretty well loved. Uh, For instance, when it came to discipline, she made sure that we kept the rules, but she wasn't a total stickler about them. Uh, For instance, when a certain someone and his friends decided it would be a good idea to jam whole packages of Mentos into two liters of Diet Coke, shake them up, and then throw them off the third floor sun deck to watch them explode below, she made us, I mean them, um, (laughs) only clean up the soda we had spilled on the sun deck, okay? She and her husband were also great at building community in our dorm. They attended a lot of our dorm events, made an effort to get to know us as students, and really demonstrated that they cared for us as individuals and as people. And for a first-year college student off away from home for an extended period for kind of the first time, that meant a lot my freshman year. She also led our dorm through a pretty difficult transition when one of our best and most well-loved student leaders, one of our RAs, had to step down partway through my freshman year. And so she had all in all been part of a great first year off at college. And yet, at the end of the year, she and her husband had decided that it was time for a change, uh, to move on to the next phase of their life. For whatever reason, sharing a living space with 240 college students no longer appealed to them. I still can't figure out why. And so we had a new RD coming in that year, and as we came back to school at the start of sophomore year, we had a few questions. Who is she? What will she be like? Will she be strict? Will she be relaxed? Will she come to events? Will she try to get to know us? How will she lead us through times of crisis? In other words, we were asking the question, what sort of RD will she be? Well, to be honest, those are the same kinds of questions that Luke is trying to get at uh, in our text this morning as well. The only difference is that instead of asking those kind of questions about an RD or some other leader, he's instead asking them about Jesus. He's asking questions like, what child is this? Who is this infant at the temple here? It seems he might be the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah will he be? As Luke begins telling us his story about Jesus in this gospel, those are the kinds of questions he wants us to ask. He wants us to think about, ponder, and wonder about who exactly this Jesus person is. But he doesn't just want us to ask those questions. He wants to answer those questions for us too. And the answer that he begins to sketch out in this text, the answer he gives to that question, what child is this? What kind of Messiah are we dealing with here? Is actually a pretty simple one. Because as Luke uh, starts telling us about Jesus, in his gospel. 
The answer that he gives us is that Jesus is not the Messiah that people have been expecting. Now, I know, I know, I know. Um, that's kind of something that if you really think about it, these days, 2,000 years later, we all sort of know that, right? We know that Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that the first century Jews uh, were expecting. And as pastors, we love talking about this, right? You've probably heard this from, from the pulpit before, right? We love talking about how Jesus was different and strange and how he threw everyone for a loop. In fact, I even talked about that just a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday, And yet we're going to talk about it again. And that's because this is actually a pretty important thing for us to grasp as Christian believers. You see, it might sound obvious, but depending on what we think about the Messiah, that role, who the Messiah was, what he was supposed to do, who he was supposed to be, depending on what we think about that role of Messiah, we will come to different conclusions and ideas about Jesus, who he is, what he's all about, who he's supposed to be. After all, when you think about it, right, how you think about someone's role, a role that they occupy, determines what you think about them, right? We all come with certain conceptions about who certain types of people are supposed to be, and so when people fill those roles, it affects what we think about them. You might think, for instance, that a pastor should never wear a suit, or you might think that a pastor should wear a suit every Sunday, And depending on that, you'll have different ideas about whether or not I'm doing a good job or not. And the same thing was true for people back then. How we understand the Messiah affects what we think about what Luke tells us about the Messiah here and who Jesus is, what kind of savior, what kind of redeemer, what kind of deliverer he was going to be. And so we're gonna sort of beat this idea into the ground over the next number of weeks because Luke kind of beats this idea into the ground that Jesus was not the Messiah, not the savior, not the redeemer and deliverer that people were expecting. And we're gonna start beating it into the ground this morning. Because truth be told, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that people expected. See, by the time Jesus was born, the Jewish people had a pretty uh, comprehensive and well-developed picture of what they thought the Messiah was going to be like, who they thought he was going to be. After all, they'd only had a few thousand years to think about it, right? By this point in the narrative, the Jewish people have been waiting for centuries upon centuries upon centuries for God to send his Messiah. They've been anticipating, looking forward to him. So that by the time Jesus was born, they had a pretty good idea of what he was going to be like. In other words, they were like Lions fans, only more dedicated. (laughs) Waiting and waiting and waiting. You actually had a pretty good draft this weekend, I think, so... And so it makes sense that the Jewish people had dreamt up some ideas about this long-promised Messiah. And unsurprisingly, the picture that they'd come to, this sketch that they'd drawn out in their minds, the person that they dreamt up actually looked quite a bit like somebody they already knew. That's because when the Jewish people pictured their Messiah, when they talked about him, dreamt about him, and imagined what he would be like, they tended to picture someone from their past, someone who had saved them once before, the person who had been in power the last time that they had experienced success and salvation as a nation. You see, when the Jewish people thought about the Messiah, when they dreamt of who he was and imagined what it would be like, they thought of their favorite ruler, their consensus best king, the one that God had used to expand their borders, secure their nation, and bring them prosperity and success. That's because when the Jewish people dreamt about, imagined, and thought about the Messiah, the person they pictured was David. 
After all, David was the best king Israel had ever had, right? He was the one who had unified them as a people. He was the one who had fought off their enemies and conquered them and achieved a lucrative peace that meant tribute was flowing into Jerusalem from all the nations around. More importantly, he was remembered as a man after God's own heart who had led the Israelites in humble obedience to the Lord. And so when first century Jews pictured the Messiah, who he would be, what he would be like, the sorts of things that he would do, that's what they imagined. They pictured David, a Messiah-like king like him who would come and return them to the glory days from back when he had been in charge. We still actually do this today, don't we? Right? Every four years when we're getting ready to elect a new president who will magically solve all our problems and make everything just the way that we want it to be, right? That's how we always kind of imagine it. We we, we do the same sort of thing, don't we? We imagine our next leader, what they'll be like, who they are, the sorts of things that they'll do, and where do we get those ideas from? We often get them from looking to the past. We look for the next Washington or Lincoln. We look for the next Roosevelt or Kennedy. We We look for the next Carter or Reagan. You see, when we dream of the perfect leader, we tend to look back at the leaders who have come before, the ones whom we respected, the leaders we wish we could have again, and then we create our expectations for our next leader out of the ones we've already had. And the Jewish people were the same. They'd spent so long waiting for this promised savior, this long-awaited Messiah, this coming king, that they'd put together a whole checklist of different characteristics and traits that he was going to have. He would be the kind of leader David had been. Like David, he would command an army and sweep Israel's foreign oppressors away. He would drive the Roman authorities and all the other Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who were there in the Promised Land, he would drive them all out. And he would reestablish the kingdom of David in all its former glory. In other words, when the Messiah finally came, Israel would get to be Israel again the way it was supposed to be, the way it had been before, the way it had been under David. And so when Luke starts proclaiming here in his gospel that the Messiah, God's promised savior, his long-expected king finally has come, people would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have known exactly who this Messiah was and what he would look like. They would have known exactly what to expect because the truth of the matter was they already had an image and an idea in their minds. The only problem is that Luke doesn't give them the same image or idea with what he writes about Jesus here. He doesn't sketch the same sort of picture. He doesn't paint the Messiah the same way that everyone was expecting. Instead, Luke outlines someone very different. He offers a different kind of picture. He seems to be telling people here, this isn't the Messiah that you've been expecting. The first obvious difference is that Jesus' family doesn't look like David's. Contrary to the normal images of the Messiah, Jesus and his family don't look like royalty, right? When we think of royal families, we expect them to look a certain way, right? First, there's the dynasty, you know, there's a long line of dignified rulers succeeding one after the other, after the other, after the other. Uh, They also are well-established, right? They boast large amounts of wealth and influence and power, And then there's a magnetism to them as well. Royal people, just being in their presence demands your respect, right? And people will do anything to keep them happy, even without them having to ask for it. And yet that's not how Luke describes Jesus' family here. Far from it, actually. You see, Jesus' beginnings are much more humble, which is something that Luke actually makes a point of here in this passage. 
You see, according to Jewish law, a couple things had to happen after a mother gave birth. Most of the rules concern the child, but some of the laws were for the mother too. Specifically, according to law, when a woman gave birth back then, she was considered ceremonially unclean for 40 days. And then after those 40 days, she had to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to be considered clean again. Okay, and like I said, this is right after Mary has given birth uh, at the beginning of Luke chapter two. And so that's why she and Joseph are in Jerusalem. The law stipulated that for most people, when they went to the temple to offer that sacrifice to reestablish ceremonial cleanliness, most people had to offer a lamb and a pigeon. Okay, but there was a concession. Lambs were kind of expensive, and so if you were too poor to afford a lamb, you could instead offer something else, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And what does Luke say that Joseph and Mary show up with at the temple to offer for this sacrifice? When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. They're offering the discount sacrifice here. Luke doesn't even mention the lamb. He says simply that Mary and Joseph were there to offer a sacrifice in keeping with the law, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What he's telling us already, what Luke is telling us already is that this child, this Messiah, this king, doesn't come from money. He doesn't come from power. He doesn't come from a recognizable, rich, well-respected, well-established family. He doesn't boast the influence or magnetism common for a king. Instead, his roots are much, much, much more humble. He's a low-income kid from a low-income family hailing from the unremarkable town of Nazareth in the often ignored region of Galilee. Strike one against the standard image of a king. Strike two, though, would have seemed even more serious to the Jewish people at the time. I sort of referenced this earlier, okay, but a huge component of the Jewish picture for the Messiah was that he would drive out the foreign powers and non-Jewish people who had infiltrated Israel. Basically, according to the Jewish image of the Messiah, God's promised savior was going to get rid of all the Gentiles who were mucking around in God's holy land. And I actually have personal experience of this. Um, I've talked about this before. I, a few years ago, I was in Israel and Palestine for about a month. Um, and while we were there, we visited a number of the holy sites. One of the holy sites that we visited was the Western or Wailing Wall, which is the only remaining part of the Jewish temple. It's actually the same temple that Jesus and his parents visit in this text. It's the only remaining part of that temple that's still standing after the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. Okay? It's basically one long wall. And as such... It's considered the most holy site for religious Jewish people. And it's also kind of a tourist trap. It's right in the middle of Jerusalem. And so while we were there, we decided to go and visit it. And by we, I mean only the men in our group. Sorry, ladies, but you're not allowed anywhere near the Wailing Wall. Only religious Jewish men, really, are allowed there. Uh, we were an exception, and the reason we were allowed to is because we put on temporary yarmulke, those little skull caps. They, gave up, they give out paper ones, temporary ones, at the Wailing Wall, so we were technically <laughs> abiding by the law. And so we approached the wall, and we were sort of looking at it, taking it in. Uh, one of the things that people do is they write pr prayers on little notes of paper. They fold them up, and they stick them in the crevices between the, the giant uh, blocks of stone that make up the wall. And so I was standing there, and I was kind of taking it in. I was looking at all these prayer notes that were stuck in the crevices, when all of a sudden I got elbowed out of the way from where I was standing. And 
standing in my place instead was a religious Jewish man with a tefillah black box on his forehead and the tefillin black strips around his arm, uh, around his arms, holding a copy of the Torah. And as soon as he had nudged me out of the way, he started bobbing back and forth in prayer there. And I was a little frustrated, especially because there was lots of open space along the wall. Um, but I figured I'd had enough time at the wall, and so I went back to find my group, only to find out I wasn't the only one of us who had been elbowed out of the way like that. A number of us had been. And so we started talking about that, and our guide, Lazarus, was standing nearby, and he was kind of listening to us as we talked. And finally, he just sort of chuckled, and he said, of course they knocked you out of the way. You're goyim. You're Gentiles. You're non-Jewish people. They don't want you here. Now, I don't tell that story to make Jewish people look bad, because they're not. Okay? Um, during the month that I spent there, some of the most hospitable and gracious and kind people were also religious Jewish people. I only tell that story to get at this idea that there is a long-held belief in Judaism that in order for Israel to return to her former glory, she needs to be just Israel, just made up of Jewish people, just ethnically and religiously Jewish with no one else as part of it. And so as a result, many people in Jesus' day believed that when the Messiah came, that's one of the things that he would do. He would cleanse and purify the land of all the non-Jewish Gentiles so that they could be God's chosen people once more. And yet that's not what Luke tells us about Jesus here. Instead, he records a story about a mysterious figure named Simeon who's been waiting around in Jerusalem longing for the day when he would get to see God's Messiah Led by the Holy Spirit, he goes to the temple courts just as Jesus' parents are bringing Jesus to the temple. He takes the child in his arms, lifts up his voice, and sings a hymn of praise to God. And what does he say about this child Messiah that he's holding in his hands? Pretty much the exact opposite of what people thought. Because he doesn't say that Jesus as Messiah is going to kick the Gentiles out of Israel. Instead, he actually says that he's going to let them in. Simeon sings, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see, according to Simeon, this Messiah, this Savior, this King, isn't going to slam the gates shut on all the other nations of the world. Instead, he's actually going to fling those gates wide open and invite them in. He's going to lead them to salvation in the Lord. So that's strike two. Here comes the third. That's because while this newborn king would indeed be a triumphant figure like David, it wouldn't be on the battlefield with an army at his back. And while he would be lifted up, it wouldn't be like anyone expected. That's because contrary to people's pictures and mental images of him, the triumph of this Messiah would come through division and suffering. The Jewish people had long had an image of their Messiah coming and uniting all of Israel under his banner. In fact, there was actually a tradition that when the Messiah came, the lost ten tribes of Israel, who had been deported by the Assyrians after they took over the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. and had been lost to history, no one knew where they were. When the Messiah came, there was this idea that those ten tribes would, would sort of come back to the land, come back to Jerusalem and be reunited all together as God's chosen people. And yet Simeon doesn't predict that kind of unity for this Christ child. 
He doesn't predict a hallmark reunion for all of Israel, and he doesn't predict triumph, at least not the way that we tend to think about it, right? Instead, after giving Joseph and Mary a blessing here, Simeon's words turn darker. He looks at Mary and says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's the dark backdrop behind this story of the Messiah's arrival. As we've already seen, Christ will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, but wherever there is light, there are also shadows. And for Christ, those shadows will be shadows of division and suffering. Jesus himself later reaffirms this when he says in Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And in Luke 12, verse 51, he says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus' message would be divisive. Some would believe it, others wouldn't. Families would find themselves on both sides. Communities would split apart. The entire nation, in fact, the entire world would be conflicted about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and history has borne this out. Christ would indeed be triumphant, but not the way that people thought. He wasn't going to come riding in on a white horse to defeat the powers of the world. Instead, he would defeat sin and death by suffering and dying himself. He would use the very weapons of the enemy against him. He would crush Satan by first allowing Satan to crush him. And so Luke gives us a very different picture of who this child is. You know, he doesn't look like royalty. He doesn't come to redeem just one group of people. And he wasn't going to unite people and triumph the way that they expected. Rather, he would be a humble, divisive, suffering servant of a king who had come to establish a different kind of kingdom. He hadn't come to establish the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of David or any of the other kinds of kingdoms that we hope and yearn for as human beings. Instead, he had come to establish the kingdom of God. And yet into that kingdom, he would welcome anyone who put their faith in him. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You know, despite all our worry and concern about what that new RD my sophomore year would be like, she actually ended up being pretty great. In fact, I would go so far as to say that she was even better than our old RD. But she certainly wasn't what we expected. She had a different leadership style than our old RD. She was quieter, more thoughtful, more calm. She didn't show up to as many events, but when she did, her presence was really felt. She was stricter about the rules, too, but with such grace you couldn't help but see that her way was the right way. And despite all the ways that she differed from our previous RD, it quickly became apparent that she was exactly what our dorm needed that year, even though we hadn't seen it at the start. And so it is with Christ. Luke's picture of Jesus as Messiah doesn't match the expectations of the Jewish people or our expectations for that matter either. Christ isn't the king we expect, but he is the one we need. And that's because we don't need saving from the things we think we need saving from. We need saving from the things he thinks we need saving from. We need saving from ourselves. 
We need saving from our own warped, crooked sinfulness that shattered our relationships with both each other and with God. We need a king, a Messiah, a savior who can fix that, fix us, fix all the ways that we've broken our relationship with God. My friends, that's exactly the kind of savior that Jesus Christ is. He's the answer to all our questions. He's the fulfillment of all our expectations. He's exactly what we need, even if we didn't know that that's what we needed. Who is this child? What kind of savior is he? What kind of Messiah is he? He's our Lord. He's the one that we need. He's the one who saved us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, if you gave us what we wanted, we still wouldn't be right with you. If you gave us what we expected, we still wouldn't have what we need. If you always did exactly what we asked for, we'd be in a sorry place. Lord, thank you for knowing better than us. Thank you for giving us a Savior who defied everyone's expectations back then, who still defies our expectations today, but who it turns out is exactly the Messiah and Lord that we need more than anything else. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.